So, tonight, Nehemiah chapter 9, if you'd turn there, as we begin a study I've entitled Real Revival. Now, let me give you a little secret here. In order to have revival, you have to first be vived. Okay? You can't have revival without vival first. So, revival implies that there's actually a relationship with God. So, when we talk about revival... And we think about what it actually means in our modern context. Of course, it means a return to uh, the things of the Lord. And so this passage, now in context, is is the revival of worship and the revival of specifically a vibrant worship with the Lord from people who had been kind of divorced from God for a very long time. In fact, about 160 years. And so... They had a relationship. They loved the Lord. They're now getting back to that place to where God is going to be working once again in their lives. And they're just thrilled to be able to be in the house of the Lord. And I hope that that's our standing as we walk this earth, that we're thrilled to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, It is a good thing that we gather together and spend time in worship and in the Word. That's the principal reason that we gather together. But ultimately, the goal is that we give glory and honor to the Lord. And and the people here, the children of Israel, uh, now the city has been rebuilt. Uh, They've made this uh, incredible foray into a new way of living, as I shared with you last time, uh, as they learn to receive and to teach the word expositorily, to bring forth uh, the word of God. Remember there in verse 8 of the last chapter, and they read distinctively from the book, they gave it sense and help them to understand the meaning of it. And so as they're doing that, what happens is the Word of God transforms lives. And as they begin to read it, they, they recognize there's all kinds of things that they need to say to God. And sometimes when we're away from the Lord for a period of time, what happens when we come back to the Lord is we get to the same place the children of Israel are in this passage tonight you realize kind of how far you were away. And you realize what it's like now to be back in the presence of the Lord. And so the very first thing we're going to see tonight uh, as we focus in on the right priorities and God's desire and God's design is that there is a first a focus on confession and repentance. They have been walking away from the Lord for a long time. And I want to be really gentle tonight because I, I think there are a lot of people that walk in condemnation. They almost think that, hey, God doesn't want me, God couldn't possibly uh, use me, God is just mad at me. A lot of people walk around feeling like God is just angry with them. God loves us with an undying love. And he sent Jesus into the world to prove that very thing. And in fact, Jesus said of himself, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world through sin was already condemned. That That was the problem. The world already had an issue, if you will. And so Jesus comes into the world so that we can have a right relationship with God. It's the whole purpose for him being here. Because we were estranged from God. We were not vived at all. So there was no revival. So we need to get back to that place to where we're hearing the word of the Lord. And then what it does is it speaks that truth into our life. And then that truth forms that bedrock foundation of us going, God, you know what? I messed up in this area. And I'm sorry, and I want to turn around and go the other way so that I can really have your very best in my life. I want God's best for us. Uh, In your life, my life, the the life of this town, our, our state, our nation, our world. God has a great plan. And the only reason it it doesn't come true on many days, many occasions in our lives personally and corporately in the body of Christ is that we mess it up. We get to places we shouldn't get to going. We do things we shouldn't do. And then we wait a long time before we ever say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry. And so tonight, keys to real revival. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, Lord, for first loving us. That Lord, when Adam and Eve sinned, Lord, we all kind of fell into the sinful trap. Lord, our bodies are flesh. Lord, we have weaknesses. Lord, at times we're rebellious and stubborn. As we see in the life of the children of Israel, even though they spent time wandering in the wilderness, when they were willing to come back, 
you were willing to take them back. And Lord, we love you for that. God, that you're the God of second chances and third chances and tenth chances. That Lord, the things that you do, uh, you do because you love us. And so, Lord, tonight as we study your word, would you cause it to just seek into those little areas of our lives that need your touch. Pray for those that might be bearing a heavy burden tonight, something that's heavy on their heart. Lord, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so, Lord, use this time to sweeten the lives of your people through the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah 9. And now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt on their heads. Now in the Old Testament days, this was the sublime sign that you knew you messed up. This was, this was what you did when you got it. And so before we move along any further, know this. Not everybody gets it. And I think we have to be careful at times because we hold people to information they may not yet have. And when I say that, I say to people, who, I say about people who do not yet know the Lord. And that's why I started with you have to be vived in order to be revived. As I've said to you many times, it should surprise none of us who know the Lord that sinners sin, that people without Christ do the very things that uh, come first in their mind or maybe to their heart or possibly to their flesh. That, that's, that's what we do apart from Christ. But once you figure out that there is a God in heaven and you have said Jesus is Lord, he's master, then things get a little different. Because you go through that period of time of knowing what to do and not doing it, uh, God has a tendency to know exactly where to spank us so it gets our attention. And sometimes he does that in ways that we really don't like. Sometimes he's even really gentle in the way he sends us you know, those messages of uh, corporate love, if you will, to where he just says, you know what, uh, I'm going to speak to the people. We're, we're going through, I think, a time... Uh, in our country that is a little bit like that. It's just, it's just a mess. There are things going on in this, this nation that I, I frankly didn't ever think that I'd be, I'd live long enough to ever see. I, I really had hoped they'd never happen. And yet they are. But God is still gracious and God is still kind and God is still willing that if we should repent, that He will turn and, and to us and, and revive us again. And so that's where the people are. But they are really sorry for what they've done. And they're not just upset that they got caught. And there is a huge difference between those two things. A lot of people, because of the circumstances that come into their lives, when they engage in some behavior they're not supposed to engage in, and they know about it, put those two things together, that there's a conscious awareness that this is wrong. That, that sometimes when people uh, get to that place, uh, they're just sorry that they're going to have some negative circumstances in their life. You know, it's kind of like when you're driving down the freeway and you look down at the Speedo and it says 105, and you know the speed limit's 55, and, and Mr. Friendly comes up behind you. And all of a sudden he signals that you ought to probably find the lane closest to the shoulder. And then he gets on the bullhorn and says, uh, did I not make myself clear? Except uses other more colorful language and causes you to pull over. And then he pulls in behind you and says, do you know how fast you were going? And you go, you start yakking a mile. Well, you know, I'm my daughter's mother's uncle's cousin's aunt's friends having a baby. And I was trying to get there. And, you know, you're just sorry you got caught. You don't want that four hundred and eighty five dollar speeding ticket. And you sure don't want the insurance bill that's going to go along with it. But then in your heart, you're going, that dirty, rotten guy, you know, pulled me over. There was a guy that went by me two miles an hour faster. Why didn't you get him? You see, that's not repentance. That's, I'm sorry I got caught. I don't like the repercussions of my actions, and I'd like to get out of them. That's not repentance. So when we talk repentance, it's not I'm sorry I got caught. It's I'm sorry I did it in the first place, Lord. I knew better. I shouldn't have done it. 
And I'm sorry that I put you through the grief of having to chastise me. That's repentance. And then you go the other way. And then those of the Israelite lineage, notice this, separated themselves. We have been called saints, according to the New Testament. That means one's separated. It doesn't mean that you've got a little niche someplace out in the lobby of the church. You do not have your own little button that you can give to somebody and, Hi, I'm St. Jeff. Uh, you, you don't have any of the stuff that goes along with the things that you might be thinking. But to be a saint means to be separated. It, it, it means a called out one, actually. One who is separated away from the things of the world. And so the people immediately identify that they are separating themselves from all foreigners. And that didn't mean that everybody who's on this earth who isn't just like you is bad. Foreigners in this context means those who do not love the Lord. They did not love God. They didn't worship God. In other words, the same thing that is said to you, that we are therefore in the world, but not of the world. We're separated from the things of the world. That means that we live a a life that's pleasing to God. We've chosen a different path. And so they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Notice how far down this goes. Not just their own sins, but they looked back on their life and said, You know what? I used the sins of my father as an excuse for my behavior. Think about it for a second. How many of us use as an excuse the sins of our nation or the sins of our government specifically, maybe even our legal system, things that are not right? And we know they're not right, but because they're legal, we go ahead and do them anyway. How many of us look at our lives through the lens of what's acceptable to the world as opposed to what is acceptable to God? And so they looked back a little bit and they said, you know what, we need to get back to where we, we're supposed to be and not be happy and content just sitting here in the midst of this filth, this thing that's been created that is not of you at all, Lord. And I would say that that explains a lot of the problem of modern Christendom. We've gotten comfortable sitting in the sins of our fathers. An example, we're perfectly okay with passing out Plan B birth control pills to 15-year-olds in high school, but we're not okay if they take ibuprofen to school because they have a headache. There's something seriously messed up with that picture. There's something seriously messed up with that picture. And unfortunately, I think you look back about to my generation and say it started in the 60s. We've gotten to this place to where it's just acceptable behavior in the public square, and so we just agree with it as the church. This is where these guys are. They're saying, you know what? We worship Baal and Molech. We did these detestable things. We not only repent of what we did, but we even repent of believing the way our forefathers believed. They were wrong, and we knew it. We had your word. We knew that that isn't what you wanted, God. And they stood up in their place, and I'm not going to make you do this at every service from here on out, so just so you know. You're going to be okay sitting in your seats. This was in honor to the Lord, and they stood for a little over three hours, I might add. And in Jerusalem at this period of time, it was probably in the 80s or 90s, standing on what was then probably a mostly limestone-ish, Jerusalem stone paved area that was probably in the 100, 105-degree range. They stood for three hours. You guys get twitching after about 46 minutes. It's like wiggling around. They stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord. In other words, they they read what they had, which was codified at that time of Scripture. We would call it probably just the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books in our Bible. And so they read of their God for one-fourth of the day, so for roughly three hours. And for another fourth, so for three hours, they read from the word. This is a six-hour church service. They confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And that word worship there comes from the Hebrew word, which means to bow down their hearts. 
They said, Lord, we're, we're giving what we have to you as an offering. You alone are worthy of the glory. We've heard your word. We now want to worship you because of who you are. And then Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabana, Bunai, Sherebeth, these men stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, same basic guys, Stand up and bless the Lord your God as they say this to the people forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so the people now have gotten to this place to where they've heard the word of the Lord. They understand that God is not pleased with where they're at. But the response to that is that they know God is a God of mercy. And God is a God of grace. Notice they're not beating themselves. They're not, you know, stoning each other. They're crying out to God in praise and in worship. We need to set those kind of priorities. Because when we hear the word of the Lord, and that's why we principally study God's word, we want to know what God thinks. That's actually the reason for Bible study. That's why we gather together in the manner that we're gathered together tonight. We, we really simply want to hear what God has to say. We want to know what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. We want to be pointed in the right direction, in other words. And, and that direction is always away from the things of the world. That's away from vain philosophy. That's, a, that's away from putting things in your head that don't belong there. That's away from actively sinning. That's away from the junk that's in this world. That's away from behaviors that will destroy you or somebody else. That's away from anger. That's away from bitterness. That's away from hatred. It's away from all those things that are of the world. They're not of God. God is a God who loves us with an undying love. He's not the God of war. You know, he's, he's not Mars. He, he, he's not someone who sits, you know, behind the scenes and as a small child with a magnifying glass with a group of ants trying to barbecue them and see how long, you know, it's like. Some people think of God that way. Some people think that all we need to worry about is his sovereign power. That isn't what God wants us to know about him. And consequently, because they got that, there was a deep sense of humility. They they understood the holiness of the Lord, and they understood that they weren't quite there, and that's where they needed to go. What's going to follow now from verse 6 all the way to verse 38 is the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. And so this type of repentance... This type of confession should lead to prayer. You got it? That's what should happen. God's not looking us to try and fix the problem necessarily ourselves. We certainly have our part. But he wants us to beseech him. When we come to those places in our lives where we know we've messed up, we we know we've gone the wrong direction, he is waiting to hear from us. He wants to hear the voice of his kids. And you who are parents tonight, you know exactly what I'm saying. It is the most miserable thing on this earth to have to discipline your children, have them walk away from that discipline. Maybe you've had to spank them. I know God forbid that anyone ever do that. But maybe you've had to spank your child. Maybe you believe that that was appropriate in that particular circumstance. And that relationship between you and them is at least temporarily broken. Amen? Those of you that are parents, you know what I'm saying right now. And those of you that are kids, this is what you've done to your parents. So that would be all of you. And that relationship is is busted. There's something that's happened in that relationship. And the moment that every parent waits for is when the child comes back and, Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry. They didn't get it at first. They didn't understand it. Maybe they were just being what kids are, and that's not too bright sometimes. Amen? I don't know why they painted the dog that color. They haven't got an idea. It just happened. 
There was paint. There was a dog. It happened. And you're out there hosing the dog down. And you're like, you can't ever. And you send him away. Go to your room. And then they come down the stairs. I'm sorry. Every parent's dream is to hear those few words. I'm sorry. I get it. I won't do it again. And then, all of a sudden, every chore you gave them to do gets done. Why? Because they're repentant. They get it. They want to earn the parents' approval. And it's not because they have to. It's because they want to. They're so thankful that you didn't, you know, terminate their existence with extreme prejudice. You see, God could do that, couldn't he? He could terminate your existence with extreme prejudice. But God listens in, he looks at you, and he goes, Oh, not Jeff again. You know, What's he doing? I'm sorry. Praise God that that's how he functions. Amen? He's not sitting there waiting. He's just, Oh, man, you do that again, and it's over. Can't wait. Just give me a reason to barbecue you. And so what that does is it opens up the doors of communication. All of a sudden, you want to talk to your parents. You ever notice how your kids get really chatty after they've done something bad? It's like, oh, they come in and tell you about everything. Oh, I, I did this today. I did that today. Repentance does that. It kind of clears the decks of all the debris. Back in the 1800s, when, when they used to have those massive ship battles that we've only seen on television. But the real deal, one of the things that they would use is chain shot. They'd shoot it across the mast of the ship, rip the ship's masts off the deck, and they'd be laying everywhere, and it'd just be stuff. You couldn't begin to get the ship back underway until the debris got cleared off the deck. It's the same deal. That's what repentance is. Repentance clears the debris off the deck of the ship of your life. And that's what's happening to the people here. And so there's a deep sense, man, we've got dirt all over us. And so to show that, they actually literally put dirt on themselves. They wore camel hair cloth. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever ridden a camel. Camels are, well, they're vile. They're, they, they smell. They're scratchy. Their, their fur's kind of, it's not quite a porcupine, but about halfway there, you know, it's just like, it's just not nice. It's, it's like petting nothing you ever petted before. It's like, why would anyone ever domesticate one of these? But they would, because they shed constantly, it's part of the way that they actually keep cool. They shed their hair off. They get dirt on them, dust on them. They shed that off. They would collect the hair. They would actually make garments out of it. Stinky, nasty garments called sackcloth because they would collect the hair from around the stalls into a sack. They would then weave it into a gross cloth. They would put that on. That's what sackcloth was. It was camel hair. It's like, and, and they didn't have any under armor or anything. You know, it was on their skin. Why? Because they had irritated God. And so to show that they got it, they put something on themselves that actually irritated them so they could kind of flip the shoes, if you will. And because they had dirtied themselves, they said, God, we understand it. And they would put dirt, ashes very often on their heads and they'd walk around just like, Lord, I get it. Now, after doing that a couple of times, you would think, I'm going to quit doing that because it's really not good to walk around in sackcloth and dirt. It was just a sign. Hey, we understand. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief. It was used in that deep emotional distress. And so they put away their transgressions by saying, look, Lord, we get it. We don't want to do this again. And that very often is exactly what happens when people come to church. So I say frequently and often, this is a a non-discriminatory offender. Your, your Bible is going to get you every once in a while. You're going to pick it up. You're going to be reading. I'm not reading that anymore. You throw it down. It's just like, ah, I don't want to hear that. I think I'm justified in feeling just the way I do right now, and I don't want to see that in God's Word. But there are also times when you see it and you go, man, I knew that was there. And all of a sudden it just grinds into your heart. And that's why 
after they heard the word of God, what did the, what did the priest tell them to do? Arise! Bless your Lord God forever! Because he could have killed you. He could have taken you off of this planet. If he didn't love you, it actually would have been a whole lot easier to get rid of you than fix you. You ever thought about that? If you ever wonder about God's love, it'd be way easier to make a new you than fix the old one, okay? It's like a remodeled house, or, or maybe you've got a car problem going on right now. You know as cars get old, it's like you fix one thing and the next thing breaks down. That's how we are as human beings. Think about your spiritual life. You fix one thing, God works in some area of your life, and you've got that brand new air conditioning pump, and then the alternator goes out. And after the alternator goes out, that stupid computer, the electronic control module, the ECM, it controls everything. You don't know what it does. You just know you have to have one. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. It would have been much easier for God to just wipe us out and start over. But because of love, he works with what we are. He loves us. And so they say, arise and praise the Lord. This is in direct contrast to the last chapter. Because you remember the last chapter, they're all joyous, and they go to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they make their booze, and they're all giddy. It's like, yes, Lord, save us from, we were in the wilderness and all these things, and look where we are now, and he loves us. See, that's the way they were then. This is the flip side. It's the Ecclesiastes 3 thing. There is a time and a purpose to every season under heaven. There's a time to weep and there's a time to cry. There's a time to laugh. There's a time for joy, all those things. This was one of those times when it was like, Lord, we need to get back to our first love. And what that does is brings them to a place of absolute focus on prayer. And so now follows this incredible uh, prayer that we find in, in most of the rest of this chapter. For sake of time, I'm not going to read all the names. If you like to do those kind of things, read all the names. They are tongue twisters, many of them. You don't speak Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. I don't speak it on a daily basis. I know what they say, but I have nothing to prove to anyone as to whether I can pronounce these names. So we're going to go a little bit faster by not reading them. And then the Levites... And you can see their name said, Arise and bless the Lord your God forever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise for. Notice this, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens and the earth with all of their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them and to the heavenly host. They bow down to you. That is a prayer of adoration and praise. And I want to remind you of something. In your prayer life, it is a wonderful example to us to begin with praise. Say, God, even if you're going through a difficult time, God, you're still good. God, you're still the creator. God, you still have my best interest in mind. God, you're still my Lord, which means master. So I owe my allegiance to you. It's a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of adoration. And so it begins this long prayer with exactly where I think you and I ought to be. Because no matter what you're asking God for, you need to remember who you're asking. Amen? And he's a God who loves us. He's a God whose mercy is new every morning. His grace is sufficient for us. We need to remember who he is. And as we pray... We're praying to a gracious, kind, loving, gentle God who in fact knows everything, is the owner of everything, and has a wonderful plan and desire for I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord, there in Jeremiah. They're, they're not evil. They're good. They're not for a dismal future. They're actually for a hope. You see, we begin with praise. It's always in the context, though, of God be merciful to me, a wretched sinner. See, even my praise has to be phrased that way. Because God doesn't owe us mercy. He chooses to give us mercy because he's loving. He doesn't owe us grace. He chooses to give us grace because he's gracious and kind. So, we're beholden to him. He is not beholden to us. Some people think that if you just do enough things for God, 
that he actually then is beholden to you. Well, Lord, I went to church twice last month. You know, I had to listen to Jeff. And I mean, you know what that's like. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, well, overlook this sin. It's almost like, if I do this, then you have to do this for me. No, it's always in the sense of mercy. And mercy means that you do not get what you deserve. Amen? So when you think of God's mercy, mercy, grace, they're bookends. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve, and mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. They're two very separate things, but they're linked. So he's merciful, (laughs) because what you deserve is, get me a new Jeff. It's easier. And so when you think of this, you can think of it this way. Lord, I did it. Lord, I'm the one. Lord, I neglected your word. Lord, I rebelled. Lord, I've been disobedient. Lord, I didn't do what you told me to do. Lord, I went the wrong way. And thank you for being merciful. Amen? When you begin that way, you set the stage for proper interaction with the Holy God. If you begin by, I can't believe you left me in this situation. Some people pray like that. Get mad at God. And by the way, God understands when you get mad at him. Not saying he necessarily likes it, but he does understand it. And fortunately for us, he also doesn't act on what he could do, which is to say, hmm, don't like that. Try this. <laughs> does that feel better? He doesn't do that either. So remember who it is that you're praying to. He loves to hear from his kids. He wants us to acknowledge the fact that we've been wrong. Again, back to our child analogy, when your kids come, and I can tell you this is apparent, and they go, we did it. You are much more prone to being gracious and merciful than if didn't do it. It was him. He did it. He is a vile, rotten scum. And if I, if I wasn't related to him, I would have never gotten this mess. You see, when that happens to a parent, what a parent does is go, mm, that's not what I heard. That's not what I saw. Now bear in mind that you're talking to God. What do you think he heard and saw? Exactly what you did. So lying to God really doesn't work all that well. He's not exactly, you know, going, wow, that was a really good story. I didn't see that. I didn't know. Sure glad you enlightened me. No, we give praise and adoration and leave him as God. Notice it says, you alone are the Lord. You alone are the master. You call the shots. You're driving the bus. I'm a passenger. You know what you're doing. Most of the time, I don't. What a great God he is. And he's worthy of that praise. One of the things that you realize, if you, if you ever get to have an opportunity to go to a, a really top-notch, world-class observatory, and if you get to see what goes on there, and you look out into space, and you think that there's a singular God who created everything that you see, and you look at those galaxies and nebulas and star systems and clusters that are out there billions of light years from here, and you know that there's somebody that holds it all together, and you just stare at it. If you're not, wow, you're creator God. You made everything. And you care about me? I showed you a picture of the Eagle Nebula a few months back. That thing's 15 trillion miles high. And God's just like, oh, I think I'll make an Eagle Nebula. He's a great God, worthy of praise. The second thing, notice the prayer of thanksgiving. And this is the longest section here, and I want you to really look at this and understand it. This was very personal to these people. This is personal thanksgiving. It'd be like you and I praying, God, thank you for what you've done through the lives of others, and that you yourself actually accomplished in the history of our nation. That's a very short period of time compared to what they're going to pray right now. When we look back on it, we're here tonight free, not because of what 
most of us in this room actually did, but because of what others have done. God moved in a powerful way, and we happen to live in the most free nation on earth. Okay, We have the greatest prosperity of any nation on earth. We live in better housing than any nation on earth. We are more well-fed than any nation on earth. We have the best, in spite of its faults, governmental system, legal system of any nation on earth. That's the actual truth. That's true. It's the same thing that's going to now be prayed as they begin in verse 7. For you, the Lord God, who chose Abraham. Notice what they're doing. This is a prayer of thanksgiving going all the way back to Abraham. Abram, the father of a multitude, the one about whom they would say, we're of the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarch. Notice what they say, you who chose Abram. When did God call Abram? When he was still living in a carnal, nasty environment with the Chaldeans. Abram was no big steal for God. And we know from his life that he wasn't exactly perfect, was he? And so here comes the history lesson of thanksgiving. And brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him a name Abraham. For you found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give to his descendants those things, and you have performed your words, for you are righteous. So they begin with thanksgiving, man. We wouldn't even be here if you hadn't have called one guy. That's thanksgiving. Sometimes we forget to be thankful to God. We're so busy whining about the present that we forget how good he's been in the past. Amen? I don't know if you guys do it. I do it. So if it doesn't apply to you, just take it from me. There'll come a time in your life when you'll whine about the past and you'll whine about the present and then you'll think about the past and you'll go, oh, that's right, God, you were faithful. You see, it reflects on God's call. God was faithful to himself. Amen? You and I are here because of it. He goes on, verse 9, For you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. So he moves on to this next big chunk of the history uh, of the thanksgiving that we ought to have, that they had. You see, because all of us have been delivered out of some kind of Egypt at some point in time. All of us were once in a point in our lives where we weren't walking with God and somebody came along and said, you know what, here's the truth, like Abraham did. He was alone. He didn't have a clue where the promised land was. He didn't actually even know how to get there until he got on the trade routes along the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, traveled across through modern-day Turkey and Syria, and then down into Canaan. He didn't have a clue where he was going. Verse 9, for you saw this, the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard of their cry at the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders to Pharaoh and against all of his servants, against the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it was in this day. You divided the sea before them, and so they went through the midst on dry land. And their persecutors, you threw them to the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. And moreover, you led them day by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light for the road in which they should travel. This is all a prayer of thanksgiving, going back, looking at their lives, going, God, I wouldn't even be here. And God, I certainly wouldn't have been guided from this place to the one I'm at now to where we are today unless you had intervened in my life. And so this is typical of our own prayer life. I can look back at God's faithfulness, and I can see the history of God's faithfulness in my life, even in the very worst things that have ever happened in my life. And that is a great comfort when I'm actually confronted in the present, because I know how God responded then. Do you get what I'm saying? You see, because I've seen God's faithfulness, and I've seen him react to the things of my past, I can be assured of my present and my future. I can look forward and say, God, you were faithful in the past. You're faithful today. You're going to be faithful in the future. 
because you've never been less than faithful. You've never turned your back on me. You, you haven't cast me out. You should have, but you didn't. You rescued me from thing after thing after thing. And in doing so, he performed these, these signs, these miracles, these wondrous things. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Next, he said, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. Notice what he says. He said, Lord, you told us the truth. Do you remember what happened at the base of the mountain? Aaron's down at the bottom of the mountain with the rest of the children of Israel. Remember what we said last week? What are they doing? Well, you know, they've been gone for 40 days. I mean, come on, let's, let's do something, even if it's wrong. And so they gathered together all of their gold, and they throw it into the fire, and Aaron makes a golden calf. Now, I'm kind of thinking, think on it for a second. Mm, just saved you from Pharaoh. You kind of went across the Red Sea. You got over here, and 13 minutes later, you're making idols. God's been faithful in the past. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9, amen? If we confess. So he goes back to where this started, confession. Then he's faithful. They got it. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them the precepts and statutes of laws by the hand of your servant Moses. You gave them bread from heaven. Remember the manna that came? They're wandering around the wilderness. Look, you bring us out here to die. They're whining complainers. We're whiners and complainers. We bellyache to God pretty much every day about something. Amen? It's okay. You can say amen. Because we do. You don't want to admit it here. Just go to your prayer closet and admit it there. Tell God that you're sorry because you're a whiner and a complainer. I don't know why it looks like this, God. I mean, I have this. I don't know. Nothing has changed. We still do the same things. Gave them bread for their hunger, and you brought them out of the water from the water from the rock for their thirst, and told them to go and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. Time after time after time, you see this prayer of thanksgiving. Time after time after time, God says, "Go do this. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of you. I got it under control." The children of Israel go to that place. Well, you're not doing it fast enough. You're not doing what I want. I don't like how long you're taking. Anybody ever do those things? I do. I don't like how long you're taking, God. I don't know why you're doing it that way. I mean, you didn't even consult me. I mean, after all, don't you know how smart I am? If you just talk to me, I could give you the answers. It's the way we pray sometimes. Like, Lord, you should do this, 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 and this. We give him a bullet point memo. Follow it. It'll be okay. I'll like you then. And God, time after time after time, they get to the bitter water at the springs of Mar. He says, toss in a tree. They get to the rock. He says, strike it once. They do it twice. You get the picture. You provided bread from heaven. Notice verse 16. Gave him, he even gave him rest. He gave him rest in the wilderness. Isn't that nuts? You look at pictures of the Sinai. There ain't no rest for the wicked. There ain't no rest for the righteous. There ain't no rest, period. If there's a place that God forsook, that's it. Go to Joshua Tree, you get a little window of it. In August. 115, no plants, even the lizards die there. From heat stroke. But they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks. They were stiff-necked, they were stubborn. Anybody else stiff-necked and stubborn? You need to recognize that. Yeah. It's like we keep doing the same thing over and over again. We expect a different result. We're classically insane. It's like, I'm just going to keep doing it. I figure if I do it enough times, then God will have to forgive me, and it's okay. I think we all have a little bit of that in us. Did not heed your commandments. Remember, as they're wandering around after Mount Sinai, they had the word of the Lord. God had literally spoken to them and said, do these things. This is what I want from you. And then he hands down instructions for the tabernacle. He says, I want you to live your life. Uh-uh. 
Not going to do it. Don't like it. Don't like what you said. Matter of fact, I think differently. They refused to obey. Notice it doesn't say it was too hard. Notice it doesn't say that it was irrational. Notice it doesn't say that the court of public opinion voted against it. They just simply refused to do it. They knew it, didn't do it. And they were not mindful of your wonders. They couldn't even remember that they should have died in the wilderness. They're still in the wilderness and they could not remember that they should have died in the, in the wilderness. Isn't it weird how we can go through something and God delivers us and a week later you're like flirting with the same stupid thing? Expecting something better to happen from it? It's like, I'm going to wander around out here in the wilderness more. You get run over by a truck and you're wondering, well, where'd the truck come from? It's the one that ran over you the week before. But you got back on the same road, standing in the middle of the same road, in the middle of the same darkness, going, oh, I don't think I'll get run over this time. <laughs> that you did among them, they hardened their necks. And in rebellion, they appointed the leader to return them to bondage. But you were God. Oh, I love, but you were God. Because if he wasn't God, he's like, okay. One generation, you're all going to be dead out here. I'm going to stop giving you water, stop giving you bread, not going to lead you anymore. You can just rot out here in the desert for all I care. But God, because he loves us. Ready to pardon, underline this verse. Ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful. Oh, and thank you, Jesus, slow to anger. And I mean eternally slow to anger. Not like 10 seconds, well, I'm going to go to 15 today, but slow to anger. Abundant in kindness. That word abundant means overflowing, by the way. It means as if it comes from the inside and you cannot exhaust it. He is overflowing with kindness continually. And did not forsake them. See, you and I would have forsaken them. You would have said, you want it, you got it. They molded a calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. I mean, in, Moses is up there, thundering and lightning is going on. God is speaking to him, and they're down at the bottom of the mountain just going, well, we'll just make our own God. We're pretty dumb. Some. You ever wonder why we're called sheep in the Bible? Because we ain't the brightest and the best. If you don't believe that, look at the course of human history. You would think after a couple of world wars, we'd figure out, let's not do that again. And yet we're perched on a third one. You would think after a while we would figure out we should probably take care of the poor because it's in the best interest of the whole world to do that. Because it's easier to keep people out of poverty than it is to dig them out after they're in it. Way easier. Teach them how to fish, they're good for a lifetime, amen? Not that hard. But we have more people in poverty today than any time in human history. Think about it. We got more stuff. We have more energy, we have more technology, we have more capacity and ability to provide for everybody on this planet, and yet still two-thirds of the world's population goes to bed hungry. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Four billion people are malnourished and go to bed basically hungry every day. Yes, a vast majority of them are in Asia. China and India specifically, Indonesia. But the fact of the matter is, we don't learn so quick. Note the behavior and note what God does here. Rebellion repeated deceives. Rebellion repeated deceives. You get the picture? 
when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you kind of get the impression that it's working. Yeah? It's what happens in our nation. We keep doing the same stupid things over and over and over. Oh, it's working. We're doing just fine. Yeah, look, the stock market's up. It's got to it's got to be better. Hmm, what about the $50 trillion that we're in debt? Oh, but it's better. It's mankind's prone to think that way. Praise God that our God doesn't respond to that foolishness in anything other than manifold mercies. Verse 19, yet in your manifold mercies. You know what that means? Multifaceted mercies. If you think about a manifold, whether it's on a car or maybe in an irrigation sense where there's a whole bunch of valves right in a row, that's called a manifold. On the car, that's that thing that sits on top of the engine that it takes exhaust gases and intake gases from the carburetor and puts them where they belong. It's this one thing that branches out. Aren't you glad that God's mercy branches out? That it goes to all places, not just a lot of places, all places. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar and cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light in the way that they should go. And you also gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold their manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't even wear out, and their feet did not swell. Let me tell you something about the Negev. To walk across it in the dead of winter, your feet would burn off. They were wearing nasty, gnarly clothes. They didn't exactly take a garment factory with them from Egypt. You know, here comes the garment boat, follows them along, sets up shop. Oh, here, have a new tunic. They had zip. Nada. For 40 years, God was good to them. Faithful. And moreover, verse 22 says, you gave them kingdoms and nations. After all of that, they still ended up actually getting into the promised land. Not all of them, and certainly not Moses. Divided them into districts so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, the land of Og of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, which is exactly what he said he'd do for Abraham, didn't he? What I said I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. Even though you don't keep your end, I'm going to keep my end. That's a good God. And so he gave them as they went in, they possessed the land, for you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hands the kings, the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. You took the strong cities, the rich land, possessed it, houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees. They ate and they were filled and they grew fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. That is the history of the faithfulness of the Lord, and that's why it begins in in this part with a prayer of thanksgiving. He says, here it is. You don't deserve it. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Isn't that nuts? After what you just heard, nevertheless, they were disobedient. If somebody walked up and handed you a, a, well, forget the check, because that might not be good. They handed you a sack of of bank stacks of hundreds. Those are $10,000 per stack. And they gave you a thousand of them, for those of you that are quick at math, that's a lot of money. Ten million bucks. And they said, here's your, here's your garbage bag. It's got ten million bucks in it. Well, I don't know why you didn't give me twenty. Right, what can I do with this? Jeez, cheapskate. Can't believe it. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. No, you'd be kissing their feet and licking their boots and following around. Can I get that door for you? Oh, let me polish your car. Does your dog need to be washed? You'd be wandering around in absolute abject wonderment of the graciousness of that person and the goodness that they've shown you. They survive the wilderness. Not only they survive, but they enter in and they get the promised land. They don't even have to dig wells. They don't have to dig cisterns. They don't have to plant all the trees. They don't have to do anything. They just go in. Wow, this is nice. Somebody hands you the key to that model home you've always wanted. Here it is. It's yours. Oh, gosh, I went to the carpet and it's a different color. <laughs> they were disobedient, rebelled against you. 
and cast your law behind their backs. You give them a couple of things to do, and they're like, I'm doing ten things. I'm not going to do them. Killed your prophets who testified against them. Turned them to yourself. They were great provocations, and therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies. You said, okay, you don't like it the way it is right now. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so the Assyrians, the Babylonians all come to oppress them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven. Isn't that nuts? Here's what I would have done. You got exactly what you wanted. You can cry all you want. I'm not hearing you. Don't want to hear it. I was nice to you for 40 years. It's over. That's what people normally do, but not your God. According to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers and saved them. Time after time after time. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. We deserve to be spanked, and you didn't spank us. You delivered us instead, and therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, and they had dominion over them. And yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. They kept doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. It's the history of the children of Israel. And each time, God said, if you will turn, if you will repent, if you will cry out, I will deliver you. And testified against them that you might bring back your law. And they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments. You get the picture here? Time after time, it's the same exact thing. Different circumstances, but the same basic principle. Here's what I'd like you to do. Haven't I been good to you? Would you please do that? No. Okay, well, you're going to get a spanking. It's okay, going to do it anyway. And then after the spanking, okay, well, I'm going to bring you back because I love you. Here's what I'm going to give you. Great. I'm not going to do that. You going to do that? No. I'm going to spank you. Okay. You would think after about 40 years of that, they'd be going, mm, maybe we should change your tune. But they sins against your judgments, what a man does, uh, you shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. And yet for many years you had patience with them. I love this prayer. That's me. And for many years you had patience with me, Lord. Great patience with me. And testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. And yet they would not listen. And therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. So the reason they went to Babylon, the reason they were in bondage, the reason the Assyrians came, the reason the Gibeonites came, the reason the Ashdodites came, the reason that the Moabites came, the reason that all the Ites came and oppressed them, the Hittites, the Ashdodites, all of them, was because God had been good to them. God said, please do this because I've been good to you and I'd like for you to show it by keeping my commands. He said, no, we're not going to do that. So he spanks them and then another group of people comes to oppress them. Now they've come back. They've been in captivity for 70 years. Almost twice as long as they wandered in the wilderness. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Hallelujah, and thank you, Jesus. Lisa, can we pop up that closing slide, please? Some takeaways from this thing. You see, as they make these requests in the remainder of the chapter... Now, therefore, God, great and mighty and awesome, God who keeps his covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem before you small that has come upon us, our kings, our princes. Now, you would think they wouldn't even have the guts to pray that prayer, but that's how big your God is. When you think you can't pray that prayer, pray that prayer, because that's how big your God is. Our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all the people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, however, you are just in all that's befallen us. They got it. You see the difference? They got it. You were right, God. You should have let those things happen to us. We agree with you. When you confess and you're repenting, you agree with God. We agree with God. We say, God, you were right. I was wrong. I'm going the other direction. You've dealt faithfully. We've done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, nor our priests, 
Our fathers have kept your law and heeded your commandments, your testimonies, which you testified against them, for they have not served you in their kingdom or in the good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. And here we are, servants, today. We put ourselves in this situation. And the land you gave our fathers, you gave it that we might eat of the fruit of its bounty, and here we are in it. It yields much increase to the kings, and you've set it over us because of our sins, and also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. He says the reason we're surrounded by our enemies is our own doing, but we want to start today, and we want things to change. It's a model of thanksgiving for God's goodness. And so they make a prayer of commitment, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write on it our leaders, our Levites, and our priests, and we seal it. And so what are some takeaways quickly? God's word doesn't return void. When God says something, he means it. And he will always, always, always be faithful to what he says. And he uses his word to bring revival in our hearts. And how tragic it is that we live in a day when people toss out their Bibles for virtually the word of anybody else. God's faithful to his word, and it will always be as he has said it will be. And so if it says that if you do these things, I will chasten you, he will chasten us. But it also says if you repent, I will relent. God is faithful to his word, and it always accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. The second thing you can take away from this chapter is the only behavior that changes that results in, in real change, also changes our behavior. God's not impressed by our many words. You can flap your lips all you want, and God knows exactly what's going on in your heart. And so what he's looking for is words and behavior that match up. Real change results in truly changed behavior. A third thing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God's grace is greater than our sins. And if you take nothing from this chapter, God's grace is greater than your sins. Matter of fact, he is abounding. Remember, manifold. It overflows. It goes everywhere to all people at all times. God is gracious. He's just in all of his dealings with mankind. A fourth thing. Every nation, every country, every tribe, every tongue, God is still just. Make sure God remains God. Make sure that he's the sovereign God that still is in control of this entire world, because he can fix this mess. Us, probably not so much. A fifth thing. Reflect on God's goodness and his faithfulness. Remember this prayer. Reflect on God's goodness and faithfulness. Look back in your own life and say, God, that's where I was. This is where I am. God, that's what I did, but this is what you did. You see the difference? When you see God for who God is and you realize where you are, you instantaneously become very thankful. Because I know me, you know you, and you know where you should be. I should not be here tonight. I should have lost my life a long time ago. You see, that's how good your God is. You can trust him. Reflect on it. Those days, remember what he asks of you, because it's not much. And then do it. And then finally, I want you to notice how many things, and you can go back and read this passage again for yourself, and I encourage you to do so. Look at how many things were touched in this passage. Their provision, their power. The providence of God. All of their troubles, their trials, their tribulations, their buffetings, their good times, their bad times, their times of want, their times of plenty. Revival affects every area of our life. If you've been vived that one time and you've believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, then revival, in other words, coming into that new, fresh relationship where God is back where he belongs in your life and in our lives, 
brings a constant understanding that he wants to touch everything. He cares about your concerns. He cares about your hurts, your pains, your woes. He cares about your sicknesses, but he also cares about your health and your goodness and his blessings in your life. Touches everything. And at the end of the day, you can count on him being merciful. When you mess up, all he's looking for is a change. And he's right there to say, here's my grace. Here's my mercy. Here's my forgiveness. Here's my goodness. Because I love you. What a great God we serve. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this passage and just how it reminded me, Lord, of my own life as I've looked back on all the the trials and the tribulations, the tests. Lord, the dumb, silly things that I've gotten myself into over my lifetime. Lord, the multitude of opportunities that you could have just forsaken me and left me where I put myself. Lord, the holes that I've dug that you alone threw a rope into to pull me out of. God, the times when you've been good, when I've been bad. Lord, the times when you've been gracious and merciful and kind when I deserved every lash. Thank you, God. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you for your constant care and provision. And Father, I want to pray if there's anybody here tonight and they haven't been vived, they've not come into that right relationship. Lord, your word declares that you stand at the door and knock and if anyone will open the door, you will come in and sup with them. That it's as simple as believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're your kids. We just confess our sins and you're faithful and just to forgive. And so, God, we thank you for that gospel, that good news. We thank you that in the children of Israel, you pictured exactly what Jesus would do on the cross. Long-suffering, kind, merciful, and gracious. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the name of our loving Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen.